Well, brothers and sisters, I am very excited uh, to go through Daniel chapter 2. Finally, I think, uh, you know, when you're going to preach through a book, there's always one chapter that kind of is in your mind. You, oh, I can't wait to get there. Mine has been Daniel chapter 2, and it's not just because there's a very clear reference to Mount Zion in this chapter, which is very clear. I, I would even confess to you that I was studying this at the time when we were going through names, and I was Mount Zion is everywhere, man. Come on. Um, but uh, we will get there eventually. But this is a very exciting and important chapter. First of all, this chapter has the first prophecy of the book of Daniel, and it's a very important prophecy as far as the book as a whole is concerned. If you remember, I said two weeks ago that Daniel is made of 12 chapters. The first six, the first half, is largely historical, and the second part is mostly prophetical. However, there are prophecies in the historical part that are really the key to unlocking those later prophecies, and that is especially especially true of the prophecy we will see. We won't see it this week. We'll look at it next week, Um, but that's very true of this prophecy. In many ways, Every other prophecy that comes after this, or maybe not every other, but a lot of them, are just kind of expansions and elaborations and different versions of the prophecy we'll see in this chapter. So we want to take our time with it. That's why I split up uh, this chapter into two sermons, because there's a lot to go through. There's a lot, especially with prophecy, we want to uh, unpack. There will be a lot of historical matters to get into, which will be very fun as well. So we don't want to be rushed. We'll do that next week. But it's a very important prophecy, okay? Secondly, I am very excited about this chapter simply because there is so much Christ and gospel in this chapter, chapter 2. If you remember last week, I said, I don't want to be guilty uh, of preaching a sermon series about daring to be a Daniel. I can almost imagine... My old seminary professors just like, don't, don't do it, sitting in the back. Um, well, while there is much by way of moral example, we'll see in this chapter, to be sure, from Daniel, yet there is just so much Christ and gospel. There is rich typology. There is just so much of the richness of Scripture. Um, I can tell you, I would say in this chapter, we see Christ in the gospel, namely in three ways, in three ways. Today, we will see two of them. I almost thought about even splitting this chapter in half to have a sermon for each, um, but I think we'll be okay. We'll, We'll see two ways we see Christ in this chapter. And as I was studying this passage, I, you know, you're, there are so many times, I'm sure Jason can attest to this, or just you as you read the word of God, you're just blown away by Scripture, the inspiration of it, the integration of it, uh, God's control over history and how um, everything is fit together, and and I think we will see that in this chapter as well. Well, having said that, if you are a note-taker, I have the following three uh, headings. They're not really points. They're kind of scenes in a narrative, okay? Uh, I used to have a professor who would say, just give us something to hang our hat on. Okay, so these are three things you can hang your hat on when you come in through the door, all right? First, we'll see the folly and powerlessness of fallen man and his false gods. 
say that again. The folly and powerlessness of fallen man and his false gods. Second, Daniel seeks the true God of wisdom and power. Daniel seeks the true God of wisdom and power. And then third and finally, Daniel praises the God of wisdom and power for giving him wisdom and power. Daniel praises the God of wisdom and power for giving him wisdom and power. We'll repeat those when we get to each of those. I know they were kind of long for headings, but we'll repeat them. And as I said, along the way, we'll see Christ, namely in two main ways today, okay? Well, let's go ahead and jump into our text with heading number one, the folly and powerlessness of fallen man and his false gods. The folly and powerlessness of fallen man and his false gods. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Now here, I just want to mention quickly that this verse is often pointed out by skeptics as proof of the inconsistencies of Scripture, and while we don't want to be reactionaries and react to every single, single accusation, yet there is uh, a place for, for giving an answer to those who would bring such criticisms. The criticism has to do with the fact that it says Nebuchadnezzar had a dream in the second year of his reign, and yet we read last week that Daniel's training was for a three-year period, but here he is a member of the court with access to the king and his advisors, so how can these two things go together? Here again, we have to keep several things in mind, which we mentioned before somewhat. First, the Babylonians numbered the years of their king's reigns in a slightly unique way. The year that you came to power was not necessarily considered the first year of your reign. It was called the year that you ascended the throne. If you ascended the throne in the middle of the year, it would not be until the start of the new year that your official first year of your reign began because it's the first complete year and they only counted complete years. Now Daniel was taken captive in 605 BC. 605 BC. We spoke of the big battle at Carchemish between the Babylonians and the Egyptians also took place in 605. Nebuchadnezzar wins, he beats Pharaoh, and he heads on down towards Jerusalem and lays siege to it, or at least threatens to lay siege. And we saw that King Jehoiakim pays him off with some of the vessels of the temple, and Daniel and some others are taken as political prisoners. Now, another thing happened, very important that year, that I have not mentioned yet, I don't believe. That is namely that Nebuchadnezzar officially became king of Babylon in 605 B.C. He officially became king in 605 B.C. He is referred to as a king in a way we call it proleptically, okay? Um, if you were visiting, you know, the, the, the hometown or whatever it is where George Washington was born, they would say President Washington was born in this house. Well, a young boy named George Washington was. He wasn't president yet, but we often ascribe a title that he will have later early on to a period even though he didn't have that title yet. That's, that's kind of what it's doing here. He was at the time really the crown prince, though he is called king, 
However, in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar's father, Nabopolassar, died. Nebuchadnezzar had to rush back to Babylon to secure his throne. It was very common in the ancient world. Even if you were the designated heir, you had to secure your throne. There were always pretenders who would seek to take over. You see this with Solomon. He is the heir, and yet one of his brothers tries to take power. So Nebuchadnezzar heads back to secure his throne. Now, it could have been the case that after Jehoiakim feigned loyalty and paid him off, Nebuchadnezzar was satisfied and went home and then on the way found out his father has died. Or it could be, as some historians suggest, that Nebuchadnezzar really did fully want to besiege Jerusalem, but he had to rush back because he heard of his father's death, so he did the second best thing he could do. He took a loyalty oath from Jehoiakim, some payment, and some hostages. Nevertheless, I know that's a lot, all this to say, 605 BC was considered from the Babylonian perspective the year that Nebuchadnezzar ascended the throne. If you were to consider that, though, the first year of his reign, then what is later on called the third year of his reign would have actually been the third which means that Nebuchadnezzar's dream takes place right around the time that Daniel and his companions would have finished their course of training, and so they would have been in the court of the king. Okay? Criticism answered. I just wanted to throw that out there. There's a lot of criticisms of the book of Daniel, but we do occasionally. We don't always want to um, be reactionaries, but sometimes it's good to have an answer. Okay? Verse 2. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dream. So they came in and stood before the king. This is our first introduction to a group of men that we will see many, many more times throughout the book of Daniel. They are referred to by various names depending on their art or their craft. They are essentially, though, one group of people. Magicians, conjurers, sorcerers, and Chaldeans, they are like the wise men of Babylon. One way we could describe them is they are the keystone cops. Um, you may not be familiar with that term. Keystone cops is an old black and white silent film, and it's making fun of the most inept police in the world. They are, sorry, Joe, um, you're not a keystone cop. Um, not all cops are keystone cops, okay? Uh, <clears throat> But they're falling over one another, they're humorous, they can't get anything done. In many ways, these guys are the keystone cops of wise men. And they would be a lot funnier if it weren't for the fact that they are very evil. And in their jealousy, they are often trying to plot against Daniel and his companions and the people of God. And we will see them again and again throughout the book of Daniel. Okay? Verse 3 says... The king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. And the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. Now, small note, for the most part, everything after this and the rest of the first half of the book is written in Aramaic and not in Hebrew. This is where it switches over, okay? They say in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb 
and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. What exactly is going on here? What the king is demanding of them is not merely that they interpret the dream for him, but that they actually tell him what the dream was. Now, some older commentators argue that he does this because he had forgotten the dream. I suppose that kind of makes sense. Um, I don't know if you've ever woken up in the morning and you just, oh, I had a horrible dream, but I don't even know what it was, but I just feel horrible. I guess maybe he's going through something like that. Um, Other commentators have confirmed that reading by the fact uh, of their translation of the phrase at the beginning of verse 5. The king says, the command from me is firm. Technically, the word for command is just a thing or a matter. And that word used to be commonly translated as fallen or gone. So the King James Version, the Geneva Bible says, the thing from me as gone, or is gone. And so people have understood that to mean, I have forgotten it. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. I agree, however, with more modern commentators that the word is better understood as firm or certain, secure, instead of gone or fallen, which means that the king is saying, my command is firm. I am not changing my mind. You will not talk me out of it. Tell me the dream and its interpretation. Now, as far as why Nebuchadnezzar is requesting that they do this, I agree with Andrew Willett that the king is probably them. Andrew Willett says, he that can do the one can do the other also. Meaning, if you can tell me my dream, you should be able to interpret it. And if you can interpret it, it's because you know the dream. If you have power to do one, you have power to do the other. But, he says, the king reasons, ye cannot tell me my dream, therefore neither can ye interpret it, even if you knew it. You are then but imposters and deceivers. Perhaps the king had heard many other false prophecies in the past. Maybe he knew that even these magicians and wise men were not immune to schemes of flattering the king, telling royalty what they would like to hear, and yet his heart is concerned. His heart is very fearful of this dream. He doesn't understand it. He wants to know the truth, not just flatteries. So he knows the only way to be sure they're telling him the truth is if they also have the power to tell him what the dream was. He's testing them. It says in verse 7, They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time, inasmuch as you have seen that the command for me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, that there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. In other words, they are trying to buy time. Maybe we can pacify him. You know how that goes. Your child has a bad dream. They don't even know what it is. It's okay. Here, sit down, have a juice, watch your show. And a little while later, it goes away. Maybe they can divert the king's attention 
And then we'll get out of this whole being torn apart, limb from limb, house in a pile of rubbish kind of thing. The king is undeterred. Tell me it now. What are they to do? If they make something up, he will know, because he knows what the dream is. But if they don't give an interpretation, all of their wisdom and power and magic and understanding is shown to be nothing at all. Yet they have no time left, so this is all they can say to him. Verse 11, or I'm sorry, verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who, declare, who could declare the matter for the king. Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Um, you're not playing by the rules, king. That's not how this works. You tell the dream interpreters the dream. The dream interpreters interpret the dream. You're changing the rules. No one has ever done this, right? This is your fault, they basically say. Verse 11. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult. There is no one else who could declare it to the king except God's whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Here, as I said, we see the great folly and powerlessness of fallen men. They are supposed to be the very best, the cream of the crop, the greatest kingdom on earth at the time, surely they would have secured the wisest men. If anyone had wise men, it would be Babylon, and their wisdom is nowhere to be found. It's folly. It's a show. They claim to have great powers, great insights into the other side, the spirit realm, and yet they claim at the end, we are but mortal flesh. We have no contact with the gods Furthermore, this is not just a reflection upon them, but upon their gods as well. You know, commentators have often noted that, for example, with the Exodus, uh, the certain plagues that you get are specifically kind of an inside job on the gods of Egypt. The Nile is turned to blood, but the Nile is an Egyptian deity. Yahweh turns it to blood as though he has killed it. The frogs come from a certain deity, yet it's clear that that deity, that Egyptian god, does not control the frogs, but Yahweh does. All the way throughout the Egyptian pantheon, I think something like that is going on here. And in fact, I think it's the namesake of the king. King Nebuchadnezzar's name means Me-Nabu, or Nebo, as he's called in scripture. Me-Nabu, protect my heir. Nabu was the patron god of writing and wisdom and even prophecy. In fact, the name Nabu means proclaimer or oracle or even prophet. Interestingly for you Hebrew scholars out there, it's related to the Hebrew word for prophet, which is Navi. Nabu, Navi. He's an oracle. If there was someone, if there were a god who can give the meaning of a dream to his servants, certainly it would be Nabu. He was probably the one who sent it. After all, they would say, he's the oracle. He deals in prophecies and dreams. Furthermore, if there was a God who could give wisdom to these wise men, would it not be their patron God, the God of wisdom? Yet Nabu is silent, just as Baal was silent, though his prophets cut themselves and cried out to him, because Nabu, like Baal, is not God. In fact, he is nothing but stone or 
molten metal cast around stone or wood. Here then, Yahweh puts on full display the vanity not only of the wisdom and power of fallen man, that is, but folly and powerlessness, but the vanity of their false gods as well. This is spoken of exactly in Isaiah, Isaiah 44, 25. It says, The Lord causes the omens of the boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness. Whereas Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, quoting Isaiah, God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. I will set aside. It's exactly what he's done. He's put it on full display. On the one hand, the Lord does this to show his utterly incontestable supremacy to the Gentiles and to his own people. Yahweh, in effect, says, yes, Nebuchadnezzar, you plundered my house, but that's because I was using you as an instrument in my hand. I am far greater than you, as the tool is much less great than the one who wields it. I am turning your wisdom, the wisdom and power of your wise men, into folly. He reminds his people, yes, it was I who allowed the Babylonians to come, but do not mistake them as though they were more powerful than me. I am the one who orchestrates all of this. And then lastly, I think he shows Nebuchadnezzar himself, whose name means, may Nabu protect my heir, that Nabu cannot in fact protect you. I believe in fact this is the first step, not of mocking Nebuchadnezzar, but the first step of God's long process of drawing the king to the true God. And I believe we'll see by chapter 4 his actual conversion when he comes to have faith in the true God. All of these things we see here. Well, here let us note the first way, I think, in which we see Christ in this chapter. And this is why we read Genesis chapter 41. Namely, that I believe here, Daniel is very intentionally a type of Joseph. Yes, Daniel is very intentionally a type of Joseph, who is himself a type of Christ. I would encourage you later on today, as an exercise with your family, go through Genesis 41 and Daniel chapter 2 all the way through the end, and note all the similarities between these two passages, and even their lives on a broader scale. It's, it's really remarkable how they match up. Consider with me, though, for a moment, the significance of Daniel being a Joseph-like figure. James Hamilton, in his book, With the Clouds of Heaven, says the comparisons with Joseph are not mere curiosities. Moses had prophesied that Yahweh would restore his people after judging them, and the latter prophets pointed to a new and better exodus. In this context, the idea that Daniel presented himself as a new Joseph because he believed himself to be the forerunner of a new exodus is right at home. When other Jews were deported to Babylon in 597 and 586 BC, they would enter a land where a man had been sent ahead of them, a brother Israelite, able to intercede with the king on their behalf and oversee any inter interactions with him, just as Joseph had done with Pharaoh and his brothers. 
Joseph was sent ahead of his brothers to prepare their way into Egypt, where they sojourned before the Exodus. When Israel was sent into exile in Babylon, a new Joseph was sent ahead of them to prepare their way and set them up for the new Exodus and return from exile. That new Joseph's name was Daniel. In fact, it's very interesting. Joseph is mentioned in Psalm 105, verse 17, where it says that God sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. And yet what's interesting about that is that from the surrounding Psalms, which make up a unit, it was clearly written in the context or after the exile. Hamilton writes, The psalmist expected God's salvation in the future to match the paradigm of God's salvation in the past That paradigm included Joseph being sent ahead of his brothers into Egypt, preparing the way for them from his exalted position. And after Joseph came the Exodus. It is believed then that perhaps Psalm 105.17 is maybe a nod to Daniel. And it's not uh, crazy to think that he would be known. He was known far far and wide, not only by the exiles, but perhaps back in Judah as well. He's mentioned by his contemporaries the time. Well, think with me then for a moment, if you will, what this new Joseph would have meant to you if you were a Jew recently exiled out of the promised land. You had been kicked out of the promised land because you broke covenant with Yahweh. You had been faithless to him and gone after other gods. What is this mercy that you find when you arrived in the land of your captivity with chains on your hands? You find that the God whose covenant you had broken had already mercifully sent a man ahead of you to preserve your life. Or imagine that you were a faithful Jew living with your family in the city of Babylon or any one of the small villages that the Jews lived in. Um, Hopefully you got a chance to read my email about the story of the Al-Yahudu tablets, the Al-Yahudu tablets. These are tablets that were found from the same time period from a place called Al-Yahudu, which is the equivalent of, equivalent of like Judah town, little Judah, just as you have a little Italy, Korea town in Babylon, there was a place basically called little Judah, not Judah Norris, sorry, but little Judah, Okay. Well, imagine that you live there with the rest of the exiles, a minority people surrounded by pagans, pagans who often plotted against you, yet you could rest easy because you knew that your God had placed one of his very best, one of his most capable, wise servants in the capital, even in the court of the king himself. You knew this servant had great giftings, And that he also had the ear of the king, and he would intercede on your behalf to seek your good. And lastly, if you were a Jew then, you yourself could not deny the parallels between Joseph and Daniel. This gave you the hope that one day you're going to leave Babylon. Just as the Jews left Egypt, you will one day go back to the promised land. Maybe not you, but maybe your children or their children. It's interesting, in that article I sent, it tells us uh, that this was indeed the hope of some of those exiles, and you see this in the names they were given. One Jew, his name is recorded as Yashuv Tzadik. 
Yashuv Tzadik, which is Hebrew for the righteous shall return. The righteous shall return. Perhaps it was that his father named him this as he pondered the prophecies and providences of God, perhaps even one of them being that they had a Joseph of their own, that one day they would leave Babylon and return home. Well, as I said, brothers and sisters, in all these things, Daniel is not merely a type of Joseph, but both Joseph and Daniel are types of Christ, the great forerunner of his people. All of us are born covenant breakers in Adam. All of us are exiled out of the garden after that first generation. We rebelled. What do we find? The God whose covenant we broke sent a man ahead of us to create a new covenant and to preserve life. We find that the God whose covenant we broke while we were yet sinners sent someone ahead who died on the behalf of sinners to bring them back into his presence. As we live in this world, which increasingly mirrors Babylon, it's interesting, in 1 Peter, you really pick up this thread a lot. Peter refers to believers as aliens and strangers. They are foreigners and and, uh, in exile. He even says, she who is in Babylon greets you. It's probably a reference to the church in Rome. He sees the early Christian community as being in Babylon. They are exiles. And yet, though we see our own nation currently increasingly going down the moral tube, rebelling against nature in ways you cannot even believe, you hear of ancient pagans and you go, wow, they didn't even do stuff like this. You see the political fortunes of the nation getting worse and worse. You see the true gospel, true churches getting fewer and fewer. Yet we do not fear. We have a man who is in the palace, the greatest palace. He intercedes on our behalf. Just as the Jews had Daniel, who was a fellow Jew, we have a man who is like us, a man. He has taken our flesh up into heaven. We are written on the palms of his hands, and he intercedes on our behalf before the great king. He will preserve us. Lastly, we know that one day, Jesus will take us out of this Babylon, back to Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. Our sojournings will be over, and we know that he will do this. You know why? Because again, as a forerunner, he has gone ahead of us. He told his disciples in John 14, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwellings. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Indeed, Christ shall come back. He shall take us out of this Babylon to the new Jerusalem, and our sojournings shall be over. In all these ways then, brothers and sisters, just as Daniel is a hope for those covenant breakers in exile, we look to Christ and we have an even greater hope. Christ is our greater Joseph and our greater Daniel. Well, with that now, let's get to point number two. Point number two, Daniel seeks the God of wisdom and power. Daniel seeks the God of wisdom 
and power. Picking up in verse 12. It says, because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain. And they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them because they are numbered among the wise men. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. Here again, we see one of those three great virtues that we noted in Daniel last week that we will see again and again in his life, namely purity, wisdom, and faith. Here we see great wisdom. Verse 15, he said to Arioch, the king's commander, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? And Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Again, here we see faith. Many perhaps would question here, is Daniel testing the Lord? He hasn't even asked God yet. God hasn't even told him that he would give this to him. It's kind of funny. You see this tension in early commentators. Sometimes they'll say, well, yes, he did that, but surely he had been given a revelation of the Lord that he had already known that God would answer him. Well, the text doesn't say that. I think what this shows us, again, is his boldness of faith. For many when you see people walking in the boldness of the faith, they go, oh, you're tempting the Lord. No, Daniel here is an example to us of the boldness of faith in prayer. All right? Well, now, lastly, section number three, Daniel praises the God of wisdom and power for giving him wisdom and power. Daniel praises the God of wisdom and power for giving him wisdom and power. It says in verse 19, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belongs to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Here, contrary to Nabu, the god of wisdom and prophecy, who has not answered a word to his servants, contrary to that, the true god of wisdom and power has answered his servant. On the one hand, I think there is something very interesting here about the transformative nature of what you worship. The transformative nature of what you worship. You become like what you worship. Those who worship idols become like idols. Those who worship the true God become more and more like the true God. We see this in Isaiah. Isaiah goes out of his way to, to make this clear. According to him, idols are blind. They do not see. 
They do not hear, they do not speak, they do not know, they do not think. And therefore, God says of his own people, they are blind. All of them know nothing. All of them are mute dogs, unable to bark. Here, just as Nabu has no wisdom or power, neither do his servants. Those who worship false things become like them. Servants of the true God, however, look more and more like the true God. Daniel has appealed to the God of wisdom and power. What does he come become by the end of this? More wise. He is given enabling and might by his God. That's one of the first things we see here, the transformative power of worship. Next, then, we come to the second way, I would say, we see Christ and his gospel in this chapter. Namely, that just as God put on full display, on the one hand, his power and wisdom, and he does so against the backdrop of the folly and powerlessness of the world, he does this again and again in Scripture. He did it in Egypt. He does it with the god Dagon. He did it with Baal. He does it with Nabu, his greatest display, the greatest showing forth of his wisdom and power against the backdrop of the folly and powerlessness of man is in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and in the cross. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 18. <clears throat> it says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. I will set aside... Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Do not think, Christian, that the mocking of God, the mocking of the true God, is a mere thing of modernity. That has always been the case. Fallen man has always mocked and looked upon the true God as folly. Modern man, indeed, runs and hides behind science, cries out to it. Not that we are opposed to science, but they treat science as though it's the end-all, be-all. It is the God of the age. Modern man has many kinds of amazing technologies that he supposedly thinks he has great powers. In many ways, mankind has never, bore, never more been a fool than he is now, and never more been powerless as he is now. With all these 
false gods, man is still full of folly and powerlessness. Every day in pulpits throughout the world, you see showdowns happening like what you see in Daniel chapter 2, like you saw with Baal, like you saw in Egypt. It's still happening. God is putting on full display his power and wisdom against the backdrop of the folly of the world. He highlights his power and wisdom by a message that the world considers weakness and folly. Paul says, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Paul preaches at the Areopagus, and what do we read? Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Oh, fool, who is this babbler? What is he going on about? God highlights his power and wisdom by the frailty and foolishness of his servants. Paul says, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of power, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. God highlights his power and wisdom by using frail and foolish servants. God highlights his wisdom and power by choosing the foolish and weak things of the world and transforming them into wise and powerful things. Paul says of the church in Corinth, Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world uh, and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. You see, we are those who believe in God. And yet, even we can't boast. We can't dunk on the pagans. Boom, you lose, right? Elijah, mocking the prophets of Baal, cry out to him, maybe he is far away. Were it not for the grace of God, we would still be fools. We would still be powerless, still clinging to our false gods. Even we cannot boast. God takes fools and makes them wise. He takes the weak who are enslaved to sin and sets them free. He takes fishermen and makes them apostles. We cannot boast, brothers and sisters. It is the work of the Spirit. And yet how marvelous that he takes those are fools and he makes them wise and he gives them strength. Even after we are saved, brothers and sisters, God still highlights his wisdom and power in our folly and our weakness. When you battle against sin, God is showing his power off, not yours. As you fight off depression 
and walk day by day. God is showing his power and wisdom, not yours. As we walk by faith and not by sight, God is manifesting his power and wisdom in a fallen world and weak servants. Paul said, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, persecutions, difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God continues to manifest the power and wisdom of Christ against the backdrop of weakness and folly, even of those who are his followers. Lastly, brothers and sisters, God has shown his wisdom and power in the perfect person of his son, Jesus Christ, who is the eternal wisdom and power of God incarnate in the flesh. As Paul says, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. There were never a clearer display of God's wisdom and power ever set forth before mankind to see than Jesus Christ. And you looked at him and you heard his words. You were looking upon the eternal power and wisdom of God and hearing the very Logos wisdom of God speak. We are being more and more conformed to that image as we worship him. In conclusion, brothers and sisters, we'll get to the fun part of all the prophecies next week and Alexander the Great, and we'll get to have some great debates about things and all that. But in conclusion, brothers and sisters, though we be exiles and sojourners in this world, yet we can rest easy because God has sent a man ahead of us. And even now, as I stand opening my mouth to you, he stands interceding in the presence of the great king. Are you in need of help with temptation? He is interceding on your behalf this very moment. Do you need strength to wrangle your kids, to put them to bed, to keep the house clean, to keep the house from catching on fire and all kinds of things? He's interceding for you right now. Is the world you live in crazier and growing in evil more and more each day? You fear for your children and the world they will grow in. You think, what will happen with laws in this country down the road? Do not be afraid. The one who represents you is in the presence of the great king, interceding on your behalf. And the king loves this one. Daniel had the favor of the king. Christ, even more, has the perfect favor of his Father, and the Father will grant all the requests of the Son. Are you foolish? Yes, say yes, I am foolish. Proverbs 2 6 The Lord gives wisdom from the mouth, or the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge. Are you weak? Do you feel powerless? You feel sometimes like you have not the slightest strength to fight off sin, to continue walking, even putting one foot in front of the other day by day. As we read from Isaiah 40, do you not know? Have you not heard? 
The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. He's the God of strength and wisdom. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases strength. Seek the God of wisdom and power, and he will endue you with wisdom and power. Perhaps you are an unbeliever here. Perhaps you lament Yes, that could all be true of me if I had the power of faith, but I don't even have the power of faith. It's a gift of God. I can't do anything. I was reading in something in Hansard Knowles. It's a great name. If you're looking for something to name your future children, Hansard Knowles. And he talks about this. He says, a sinner says, Oh, I believe that if I had faith, I could be saved, but I cannot believe, and I try, and I can't. That's true of every person who has ever come to faith. Are you so powerless as though you have no faith unto yourself? Guess what? The God of power can save such a one as you. No one who has been saved ever came with their own faith beforehand. It was a gift of God. If you say, I don't even have the faith to believe, I don't even know what that means. Sometimes I've, I've spoken to young kids and they go like, I, I don't even know what that means. That's okay. God does. And he can give it to you. Cry out to him to give it to you. And the God of wisdom and power will give you the power and the wisdom of faith that you may trust in him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, although the, the believer in this passage is Daniel, and in many ways we identify most with him, yet, Lord, in so many respects, we also find ourselves guilty by identifying as well with the foolish wise men and foolish Nebuchadnezzar in this chapter. We are so prone, Lord, to put our trust in false gods, whether it be ourself whether it be money, whether it be obtaining a certain job, whatever we might make, something we think, if I had this, I would have wisdom. If I had this, I would have enough power to live comfortably. Yet, Father, all those things will fail. Oh, Lord, give us faith to look to you ultimately. Give us a boldness of faith as we see here with Daniel. I pray for all here that you would grant them great wisdom and power through Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that just as Daniel praises you, I praise you for giving wisdom and power. We praise you for giving us the ultimate gift and display of your wisdom and power, Jesus Christ, your Son. In Christ's name.